Hello, this is David Keel, and I would like to welcome you to TNBS, the Thursday Night Bible Study. This study was held on September 16th, 2010. Tonight we're going to be looking at some very difficult passages in the ninth chapter of Romans. So welcome again. This is TNBS, Volume 2, Session 21. Romans 9th chapter is where we're going to start tonight. The first eight chapters of Romans is kind of the first section of Romans, as most commentaries look at it. They divide Romans into two sections. The first eight chapters and then chapters 12 through 15. Chapters 9, 10, and 11 are kind of a sidebar, which they think Paul just kind of put in here. Paul has already been talking about our relationship with Christ and, and how we come into this relationship with Christ. And... He's discussed the doctrines of us being made right with God, if you remember, being justified by God, being declared not guilty, being forgiven for our sins, and also our ultimate future. If you remember, he makes the connection in, uh, what was it, sixth chapter? I can't remember. They were running together in there. Of our connection with Christ in baptism, where Christ was, was buried in baptism and raised to everlasting life. He says we, as Christians, when we're baptized, we're symbolically associated with Christ in that, that we, we died of sin and we were raised to eternal life. As Christ was raised to eternal life, then so are we raised to eternal life. As Christ uh, is before the Father on the right hand to intercede for us, we have the Holy Spirit in our lives today interceding for us. So he's talked about how we enter into this relationship with God. It is not by the law. If you remember, he's made a big deal with that because he's dealing with the Jews in the church at Rome and Jews in general who have a very strong belief that all they had to do, since they had the law, they were the chosen people, they had a hall pass to get to God. You know, they were already declared righteous because they had the law. And he's made these, these first eight chapters, he's talked about that and how we have to come to Christ through faith. And this enters into a new relationship with Christ. We now have a peace with God rather than an animosity between us and God. And it puts us in a new position with God because we're now the adopted children of God. We are uh, joint heirs with Christ and we will eventually inherit the glory that Christ inherited when he was resurrected uh, when, at the end, end days. So that's, that's what he's talked about up to now. In, in chapters 12 through 15, he's going to start getting into more practical matters as far as the church goes. But before he gets there, it's almost like Paul is in, in his thinking, in writing this letter, he's thinking, okay, I've established our relationship and our position with Almighty God. I want to talk about how that relates to our churches today and, and our Christian walk. But I want to say some more about the Jews. I want to say some more about the Jews and the Gentiles. So, so that's what he's going to do. Chapters 9, 10, and 11, he's going to be talking about Israel. He's going to be talking about the Jewish nation. Okay. So kind of keep that in mind as we go through here. Because a lot of commentators associate what he talked about in 829 when he's talking about foreknowledge and predestination and the calling and the justified and the glorified with what he's talking about in chapters 9. I'm not so sure that they're directly related. I think it's like his mindset has changed just slightly. And so you can look at the verses in chapter 9 when he starts talking about the sovereignty of God and God's election and very quickly associate that with the foreknowledge and predestination, but I'm not sure if that's really what was in Paul's mind. As I've told you all before, I'm going to teach this book from my beliefs, which is on the Arminian side of the predestination issue rather than the Calvinistic side, and that's going to be the interpretation I give these verses. But with every verse that I ever teach anyone, I encourage the student or the listener, have you want to qualify yourself, don't take my word for it. You should never take my word for it. 
You should take what I say and you think about it. And you have the Holy Spirit help you to discern whether that's really the way you see it. Okay? That's very important. Because particularly in some of the less concrete issues in the Bible, some of the issues that be confusing and difficult to understand. For God so loved the world, that's pretty cut and dry, you know? But there are a lot of other issues which can... I mean, you, you can have, if you've got 15 people, you can have 20 different opinions on those scriptures. So I encourage you to, to listen to what I say. Yes, I hope you do. But take it and, and in, your own, in your own quiet time with the Holy Spirit as your guide. See how you interpret these verses. See how, that, see how it jives in your mind. Okay? So, ninth chapter. <coughs> Romans. I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. Verse 3. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brother and my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belong the adoption of sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises, who are the fathers and from whom is Christ according to the flesh, who is overall God-blessed forever. Amen. Now, Paul starts off this, in this ninth chapter by stating that he's going to be telling the truth. And the reason he's making such a big point of this is because a lot of the Jews felt like Paul has, ba- has basically turned his back on them. Now, Paul is a Jew, yes. If you remember, he gives his lineage and he, gives, and he talks about his pedigree in the third chapter of Philippians. When he talks about all the things that he did, he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. You know, trace his lineage back to Abraham. And he was a Pharisee, which was only, what, 6,000 Pharisees. He was, a, he was a, the elite ruling categories of Jews. And he gave all of that up. And he was called to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. If you want to read that back over in Acts 9.15, when he had his Damascus Road experience, Christ called him to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. And this was Paul's mission. He starts off here, even in Romans, in this chapter, talking about that's his mission. He's been called to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. And so a lot of Jews thought that he had basically had turned his back on his own people. He was now becoming more Gentile than he was Jew and didn't care about the Jews because he was constantly preaching toward the Gentiles. So Paul starts this off by saying, now listen to me, guys, and I'm going to be telling you the truth. As the Holy Spirit is my witness, this is the truth. My heart aches for the Jewish people. My heart aches for them. He really does. He still has a great love for the Jewish people. He says, I wish that I could be cursed and separated from Christ if by so doing the Jews would come to know Christ. That's how much he cares about the Jews. He is willing to give up everything which he has in Jesus Christ. Everything which he has founded. He says, I, I, if I could just, if I, if I could be cursed separated from Christ, and then the Jews by that action would come to Christ, he said, it'd be worth it to me. And that's a pretty heavy statement coming from Paul. In fact, it's a very heavy statement, because if you go back into that third chapter of Philippians, look at verses 9, 10, and 11, he talks about everything that he gave up in order to find Christ, in order to come to Christ. And now Christ is the most important thing in Paul's life. That's his number one passion is to know Christ. And now he's saying, I, w- I would gladly give it up if by so doing the Jews would come to know Christ. 
His heart aches for them, he says in verse 2. And he would gladly give it all up if they could just come to know Christ. Because the Jews, he says, they were the, they were the chosen race. They had the covenants of God. They had the law of God. They, they had the worship of one true God. They had the promises of God. All these things the Jewish race had. But they had refused the Savior. And this broke Paul's heart. It really did. Reading on, looking at verses 6 through 9. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For they, because remember, not all the Jews came to Christ. He just, he just talked about that. In fact, very few Jews have come to Christ at this point. And remember, God promised that, promised Father Abraham that you will be the, the father of a great nation. And all the prophecies talked about the fact that the Messiah, the Savior, was going to be coming through the lineage, going all the way back to Father Abraham. But the Jews weren't coming to Christ. So Paul is saying, he says, so does this mean that the word of God has failed? Basically, has he not kept his promise? For they're not all Israel who are descended from Israel, neither are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants, in verse 7. But through Isaac your descendants will be named, verse 8. That is, not, that is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as our descendants. For this is the word of promise, at this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. So Paul is saying here, although the, the Jews were better prepared than any other nation to receive the gift of salvation through the Messiah, most did not. Now, does this mean that God's promises had been null and void and God had failed in keeping his promises to the, to the Israel race? Paul said, no, 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 not at all. If you remember, he's already stated over in uh, the second chapter of Romans, verses 28 and 29, when he says, it is not those that are physically descended from Abraham who are the sons of Abraham, in the spiritual sense. He's already made that comment. The true descendants of the promise of God are not the ones that are physically descended from Abraham. It is not the children of the flesh, as he says here in verses 7 and 8, but it's the children of the promise. Those who have accepted the promised Messiah, Jesus Christ. Now he expands upon this back over in the second chapter of Romans even more, when he talks about the fact that the true Jews if you want to classify a Jew as being the one who has received the promise of God, who, is, who God has kept the covenant with, of providing their Messiah in a way of salvation. He says they're not the ones who can trace their lineage back to Abraham necessarily. He says, and he's, he's talked about it, it's the ones who have the, the faith of Abraham, who are spiritually related to Abraham. Those are the true Jews. And he's saying the same thing here. It's not the ones that are the physical children of Abraham. Not the ones that were born of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Physically. It's the ones that have accepted the promise of God. Who have accepted the promised Messiah. Who has received the Messiah which he has promised. So do you think that Israelites today have any special place or still chosen by God? I think they do. I think, To be honest with you, Beth... Um, does does the nation of Israel have a special place today? Yes, I think they do. I think they're still the chosen people. And as we'll read later on, particularly over the 11th chapter, <laughs> which is going to be some more difficult verses, because Paul is going to be talking about how the whole Israel, the whole Israeli race will be saved. You know, basically is what he's saying. Now, what does he mean by that exactly? Well, well, we'll talk about that when we get there. You know, is he talking about all of them, or is he talking about just those that come to faith in Christ? But anyway, so yeah, I think the Jews still have a special place in God's plan. 
I really do. And if you read Revelation, uh, they definitely have a special place in God's plan. You know, you start giving the Battle of Armageddon and, and the, all of that. You know, so yeah, I think they will. They they think they will do still play a special place. I really do. But the promise of God to Abraham is through his spiritual descendants is basically the point Paul is making here. And this goes back again to remember, because remember the Jews thought that just because they could trace their lineage back to Abraham, that's all they had to do. I mean, like I, like I said earlier, they had a hall pass to God's judgment. And Paul is saying, eh, it doesn't work that way. 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short. 6.23, and the wages of sin is death. Jew, Gentile, doesn't make any difference. But the true Jew, the true sons of God, the adopted sons of God, are the ones that are spiritually related to Abraham. Not physically, not necessarily physically. Now granted, some true Jews did come to Christ. They did. Um, I honestly think Nicodemus. You know, I, we don't know that for a fact, or I don't. Uh, I've never seen anything to that effect, but I believe he did. I believe he was honestly seeking Christ, and I believe in the conversation he had with Christ in the third chapter of John. Granted, it was at night and kind of <laughs> on the sly, but I think, I think he was a believer in Christ. I really do. So, remember that the church that Paul is writing to here in Rome has a lot of Jewish members. Priscilla and Aquila, no, not Priscilla and Aquila, it's uh, who and Aquila? Uh, Priscilla and Aquila, yeah. We think that they're in the church at Rome, we think. Which were Jews that had to leave Rome and then went back to Rome, you know. And, and so they were believers. So, so he's writing to a church in Rome that is primarily Gentiles, but it does have Jewish members as well. Which is one of the reasons that he's bringing all this up. <laughs> so, so, yeah, there were, there were Jews that had accepted Christ. And I think the nation today still does have a special place. And in the end times, uh, like you said, Eric, I think it's going... Eric? Yeah. You know, I'm, <laughs> I'm horrible with names. I really am. <laughs> so if I call you Sam, just shake your head, okay? All right. <laughs> Close enough. <laughs> Dude, how about that? Uh, you know, as, as Eric said, I think looking at Revelations in the end times, in the eschatology of everything, yeah, I think the Jews are going to play a major role. A major role. And depending on how you interpret those scriptures, that's where the Antichrist is going to come and try to persecute, and that's where the, you know, the Battle of Armageddon and the final days and the tribulation and all that whole book series, which is a great series, by the way. Andrew. I just hope that I'm watching it from the clouds. <laughs> I just hope I'm watching it from the clouds. All right, verse 11, the ninth chapter. Excuse me, back up verse 10. And not only this, but there was also Rebekah also when she conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad in order that the God's promises according to his choice might stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. It was said to her, the older will serve the younger. As it was written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. Or I think NIV says hated. I think New English translation says, Jacob I love, Esau I have rejected. Okay, a second illustration which Paul is using to talk about how the Jewish people are special to God and how he has made a promise to them and has, how he has kept this promise down through their history. Uh, he talked about Abraham and Isaac, and now he's talking about Jacob and Esau. So he uses this illustration to describe his God has worked through the Jews in God choosing Jacob rather than Esau. It was God's sovereign choice to choose Jacob rather than Esau. 
It does not mean that God loved Esau less, just that he chose Jacob as the lineage of Christ, for Christ to, for the line of Christ to go back to. Now, in verse 13, the phrase, Esau I hated, or it can also be translated, Esau I rejected, is from Malachi chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. There, it, is, it does talk about Isaac and Jacob, but it's not talking about the physical men. It is talking about their nations. Isaac being, I mean, excuse me, Jacob being uh, Israel and Esau being Edom. So Malachi is actually referring to the nations of those two, where it says, and that's where Paul is quoting from. It says, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. Now, although the word hated or rejected has a rather harsh meaning today, I mean, let's look at it. It is accurate. If you get right down to it, it is accurate. God chose Jacob, so therefore uh, he rejected Esau, right? I mean, he chose one, so by definition he rejected the other. Okay? But like I said, I don't think think it's saying that God hated Esau or that he loved Esau any less, or he desired any less of a relationship with Esau. It just simply means that he chose Jacob rather than Esau. Why? Well, look at verse 14. 9.14. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. Who knows? Was God not being just to choose Jacob over Esau? I don't think so. I mean, he had to choose one. Christ could not trace his lineage back to both of them and left out some serious incest going on. You know, if you say, I mean, let's practicality, it's just practical terms. One or the other had to be the lineage that Christ traced back to. Unless, I guess, if you get down to Esau's, you know, third or fourth generation children who happened to come around and marry Jacob's third. Yeah, but, you know, but, but there was a lineage. There was a line. And it had to be either Jacob or Esau. Now, granted, the tradition of the time said the firstborn was supposed to inherit the most and, and you know, get two-thirds more than any, and then the second and all that. But that's not the point here. I think that God, in His sovereignty, He chose. That's just it. Look at verses. Yes, Beth. Well, I'm just thinking, sitting here thinking, you know, this has never occurred to me before. And probably the Kills and the Jerkses can relate more so than even that I can because I have a, son, a daughter and a son. So if I choose to do one thing with one child over another, it's probably more of a gender, but you can have daughters. But you still might look at Aaron and Carrie and Bonnie, mm-hmm. and you might say, Actually, maybe Carrie is the one that you would choose to be executive of your will or something because she has the mindset. She is the one that's exactly. But and he could have done it because we know that Esau was pretty frivolous, you know. Esau was was pretty frivolous. He was not responsible. That is true. Sometimes I'll pick one child to do one thing and I reject another one. It's not because I love her less or him less. It's because. Better suited to that. Better suited, or is it more common, or they like this activity better than another. That is true. If, if, if you're talking about the difference between our three daughters, if we want anything creative or, or artistic, we go to Aaron. If we want something that is written well and accurately and correct, we go to Carrie. You know, Carrie has always been classified as being the grandma Nazi of the, of the family. Bonnie? 
Bonnie has a different set of talents. <laughs> she really does. In fact, she has a little bit of both. She writes fairly well, and she's fairly creative. Mm-hmm. But also remember, though, one of the points Paul makes here is that God chose them before they were born. Before it was determined that Esau was kind of willy-nilly, and before it was determined that Jacob had a heart for God. He you know. Our, he knows our personalities already. But he knows. Yeah. He knows. Psalms 139, 13. You, you, you weaved me in my mother's womb. You're intimately aware, intimately knowledgeable. 139.3. And I guess some people, I said going back, trying to tie these verses back into the predestination argument. And, and I, don't, I honestly do not see them that way because the argument which the Calvinists and the Armenians have over predestination, to me, is a separate issue from the sovereignty of God. Now, they will try to bring that into, into play there. God is sovereign. I mean, I have, no, I have no problem with that. Because He is. He is sovereign. Looking at verses 15 and 16, reading on. Verse 15, For He says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. Now, I think God simply chooses. In His sovereignty, He chooses. Just like He told Moses, on some I will have mercy, and on some I will have compassion. Now, is this a statement of God being kind of willy-nilly? Is this a willy-nilliness of God? I don't think so. This is His sovereignty. Sometimes God protects me from the results of my choosing sin, and sometimes He does not. That's his sovereignty. If I choose to do wrong, sometimes he will protect me from suffering the consequences of that choice. I think sometimes God does let us suffer the full consequences of our actions, but I don't think he lets us suffer the consequences always. But that's just the way I feel about it. I think sometimes God in his mercy... Well, let me put it another way. One of the things I think which I'm going to be so amazed when I get to heaven is to find out all the things that did not happen to me. Purely because of God's mercy. You know, he just protected things from happening. That I, that I don't know about because, because it didn't happen. But it could have been devastating. Or traumatic. Or difficult. Other times, I think, we do go through traumatic and difficult things. To me, that's just God's mercy. That's just God's sovereignty. Sometimes he heals and sometimes he does not. Now that's the issue most of us have the difficulty with. Why can one person pray for healing and they're miraculously healed? Somebody else, a saint of God, prays for healing and they die. I, I, I don't have an answer for that. But one thing I am sure, whatever happens to me does not depend on my worthiness. That's what we have to be careful about. It does not depend on my worthiness. For based on my worthiness, the only thing I deserve from God is His wrath and punishment. It really is. So if it appears in my perspective that He shows more mercy to somebody else than He shows to me, i got no right for complaint because the very fact that He has shown any at all to me is mind-blowing because I don't deserve it. I really don't. Why am I not rich and famous? I've had a desire to be rich and famous. And I'm not. Why not? Does that mean I should be angry at those that are? 
So it made me good looking instead? No, didn't even do that. I mean, you know. <laughs> so should I be angry to somebody is better looking? The same way we as parents do with our kids. In some cases, we'll allow them to suffer the consequences. In other cases, we will protect them. And by based on that, you think God does the same? I really do. That's just my thinking. That's my, that's my experience. Because I have, I have chosen to do some things that could have turned out a whole lot worse than they did. And the consequences were beyond my control. But they didn't turn out nearly as bad as they could have. And in some cases, they didn't turn out nearly as bad as maybe somebody else who made that same choice. And in some cases, it turned out worse for me than it did for them. But that still doesn't give me any right to complain and rile and shake my fist at God. Because He will show mercy upon who He shows mercy on. He'll have compassion upon those who have compassion on. I do believe this. I do believe, as Paul has already stated in the previous chapter, that God does work all things for my good. Now, I do believe that. God often expresses His mercy and compassion in ways and upon people that surprise me. And if you stop and think about it, you could probably say the same thing. And not the least of all, me. I cannot know the heart of a person. I am not qualified to judge people. So I'll just leave it up to a merciful, loving, sovereign, just God. That's the bottom line. God is sovereign. God can choose. He chose Jacob over Esau. Why? We could give all of our human reasonings behind it. Like you said, Esau, Esau was kind of, you know, flighty. Jacob had a much better, closer heart to God. He chose David to be king. David was far, far from being a godly man <laughs> initially. But he still chose him. Why? The sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God. And, and the man, I think the difference there is he gifts. Uh, he, 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 well, how do you use that as a verb? He, he gifts. He gifts some people differently than others. He does. He does, yeah. You know. Nancy, by her own admission, doesn't teach. She doesn't classify herself as a teacher. She hates, the, she hates the thought of even having to teach. But she has one of the greatest gifts of discernment that I've ever seen in a human being before in my life. She has a great gift of organization. She's artistic. I'm not. You know, I still have a hard time drawing stick figures and, and be sure I get all the limbs on them. You know? <laughs> so we're, we're gifted differently for different reasons, for different purposes. That's God's choosing. I didn't determine that. Now I can, I, I believe, I believe that I have the free will to choose how I will use those gifts. That is my belief, going back to the Armenian thing versus the Calvinist thing. I do believe that. I also believe that no matter what I choose, I will not, I will not prohibit the ultimate sovereign will of God. I don't think man will, no matter what happens. Because God is sovereign, after all. Read on. I'd love to do that. Can we do it in one night? Mm -hmm. Have you got that thing? 
You know, you know one of the most interesting spiritual gifts things I've ever done, and, and I think it's interesting. Y'all may think it's whatever. Uh, at one year at SuperWow, with 900 students, they did a spiritual gift survey thing, you know, which is amazing. At SuperWow, yeah. Uh, SuperWow is a summer camp that's held by the Georgia Baptist Convention down in Jekyll They did this spiritual survey. The survey did not reveal your spiritual gifts. It revealed your personality and which biblical character you were closest related to in personality. It was so cool. And it did it under two conditions. It did it under normal, everyday life, and it did it under stress. Okay? And I thought it was interesting. It was kind of hard for some of the guys because, you know, we had some... We had some people built like Tim, you know, six foot, 200 pounds, solid as a rock. And their personality was closest to Ruth, you know, or Naomi. And they thought that was insulting. But uh, if I, I remember my two personalities, but I can't remember which one was every day and which was stress. I think every day my personality was related to Paul, and under stress I was a Moses, supposedly. So, whatever that means. So. And maybe because I cheated off the guy next to me. I just, <laughs> no, I, but I just, I just thought that was an interesting survey, you know. Uh, and, and, of course, you always, anything like that, you always have to take with a grain of sand, as I'm sure John will tell you, because you can't determine something like that in, in 30 minutes of answering multiple choice questions, you know, accurately. So. The, fun, the funniest one I did was when the, I was between careers my first time several years ago, and I took a Larry Burkett seminar to find out what my... my perfect occupation was. And he came back and it says that they had two statements. I was the type of person that worked well by themselves like in a research atmosphere. The second was that I was the type of person that worked well with people in large crowds. And the two top jobs was research scientist and bus driver. <laughs> and I thought to myself, that explains it. You know, I'm, I'm, I must be twin personalities, dual personalities, I guess. I, I love people, but I love being alone. You know, so, so I don't know. <laughs> All right, reading on. <laughs> Romans 9.17. For the scriptures say to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I raised you up, to demonstrate my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. Verse 18. So then he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. Now, this was the section I was debating whether to try to even get to tonight, but I'm going to get to it. Paul's next example of how God has worked down through history to fulfill his promises to the Jewish people is their deliverance from Egypt. There are two difficult statements to me. This is me now. This is me reading this. This is my interpretation. There are two very difficult statements in these two verses. The first one, that God raised up Pharaoh to demonstrate his power. And the statement, he hardens whom he desires. And if you go back and look, it also talks about, in fact, it may even say it later here, about God hardening Pharaoh's heart. All right. And I struggled over these verses, because these, to me, are very difficult phrases. I, I, when, you, when I first read them, I thought to myself, I'm having, I have difficulty with this. Listen to me. I do not think that God deliberately created Pharaoh so that God could use him to demonstrate God's power. I do not believe that. 
I do not believe that that's why God created Pharaoh. I think that God did use a rebellious, pompous, selfish, ungodly man to demonstrate his power. I think God raised him up by simply allowing Pharaoh to rise in power and position. And when he got into that place of power and position, he then demonstrated that his power was superior to the power of Pharaoh. I think God allowed Pharaoh to continue in his chosen path of refusing to believe in God and thus allowed Pharaoh's heart to become even more hostile toward God. You hear me? You want to read that again? Like I said, I struggled with this. And the commentaries I read, everyone I read, you know, like I said, you read three, you got eight opinions. There's some very difficult statements here if you just take them on face value. I do not think that God deliberately created Pharaoh so God could use use Pharaoh to demonstrate his power. I think God did use a rebellious, pompous, selfish, ungodly man to demonstrate his power. I think God raised him up by simply allowing Pharaoh to rise in power and position and then demonstrating that his power was greater than that power of Pharaoh. I think God allowed Pharaoh to continue in his chosen path of refusing to believe in God and thus allowed Pharaoh's heart to become even more hostile toward God. I honestly feel that Pharaoh could have chosen to believe in the God of Moses at any time but he chose not to. I believe that. I don't believe God would had to use ten plagues if Pharaoh had chosen after the first one and said, that's pretty cool, your God is more powerful than mine, y'all can go. But Pharaoh didn't. And I think every time he refused, his heart became that much more determined that he was not going to be bullied by this so-called God. And his heart became harder and harder. And God allowed him to continue in his rebellion. God has mercy, and God allows us to choose our paths. But remember, remember this. God can, at any time, end all of this. It is only because of God's mercy that any of us can even take our very next breath. We do indeed serve a sovereign and merciful God. Now, my commentary was very close to yours and has an application for us as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was from that verse in Exodus 9-12 about um, you know, sparing Pharaoh. The right. purpose of him. It said, God gave Pharaoh many opportunities to heed Moses' warnings. But finally God seemed to say, All right, Pharaoh, have it your way. And Pharaoh's heart became permanently hardened. Did God intentionally harden Pharaoh's heart and overrule his free will? No. He simply confirmed that Pharaoh freely chose a life of resisting God. Similarly, similarly, after a lifetime of resisting God, you may find it impossible to turn to him. Don't wait until just the right time before turning to God. Do it now while you still have the chance. If you continually ignore God's voice, eventually you will be unable to hear it at all. I think that's true. And that, that's the way I look. But God gave Pharaoh ten opportunities. 
with the ten plagues. And every time he refused. Every time he refused. And then when he finally did give in, he recanted that even. You know, so it's not like God was not showing... I mean, God showed tremendous mercy toward Pharaoh, if you want to look at it that way. I mean, it would, it would, it would not even taken a, a good thought for God to have wiped out everybody. <laughs> you know, the first plague could have been, whoosh! <laughs> Another Psalm and Gomorrah even. You know, I, so I think he just simply used Pharaoh to demonstrate his power. I really do. And over and over and over and over and over again, he gave Pharaoh the opportunity. And Pharaoh refused. And like, you, like that commentary you just read said, the more he refused, I think the harder his heart became. And I think you're right. I think at some point God just finally said, okay, that's the way you want it, go for it. I do not believe that God washes his hands of us, but I do believe that God pulls his hands away from us. Okay? And to me, there's a difference. To, to wash my hands of something means that I will have nothing more to do with it at all, ever. I am through with it. But I think God, because of our constant rebellion and refusal to accept God or to accept His mercy or to obey His command, or whatever, our constant refusal of God, I think there comes to a point where then God just says, Okay, if that's the way you want it, I will allow you to continue on in that path. Right, you're not being moldable. You know, you, you know. I don't think he washes his hands of us, but I think he does remove his hand from us. He finally just says, okay, if that's the way you want it, you know. He lets us go our own way. Yeah. There never is a point of no return with God. I don't think there's a point of no return, and I have heard that preached. There's a point of great difficulty to return. There's a point of great difficulty. There's a point of almost impossible difficulty. I think some people's minds may be unreachable by God, but it's not because of God's lack of power. It's because of their lack of willingness. <laughs> you know. Yeah. It, yeah, a lot, I think people like that. I have heard it preached. That's Superwell again, actually. And this is, the, this is the only time that I've ever... This came close to walking out of a sermon. <laughs> with my entire youth group. And I wasn't going to be polite or quiet about it. Um, <laughs> Y'all know I have a tendency at times to have a very loud voice that I can project well. I was going to project my voice as well as I could in that auditorium of 1,500 people. I was going to stand up and I said, that's enough. I've heard enough of this. No more. And we're leaving. You know, and I was <laughs> I found out later that if I had done that, that over half of the, the people probably would have walked out on this guy. But his, his, his basic sermon was that, like we're talking about, you can continue to refuse God to a point. And at that point, if you continue to refuse God, God will finally come to the point to where He will simply put you on the shelf and leave you alone. Okay, I don't have a real problem with that. Because I think, like you said, sometimes God just said, okay, you just go your own way for a while. But then He carried it one step further. He says, and once you're on that shelf, even if you turn back to him and repent and seek him, he will refuse to hear you. And that I don't believe in. He says, God's love has limits. It has, it can only take so much. 
he doesn't know much about God. Apparently, he doesn't know much about the Scripture either, Eric. <laughs> That's exactly what the prodigal son is about. He wasn't quoting Scripture to back up his point. So, <laughs> I don't think so. I don't think God has God's love has limits. Not from what I've seen. Not from what I've experienced. If God's love had limits, I don't think any of us would be here. In summary, I'll look at these verses in the ninth chapter, and, and we want to go on to, we'll continue on next week. But I look at these verses where Paul talks about God choosing as not being in support of the foreknowledge and predestination in the Calvinist view. I'll look at it simply as being God exercising his sovereignty. Because he is sovereign, and he does have the right to choose. Uh, as Amanda has said, for some people for some tasks and some others for others' tasks. And as Paul is going to go into this next chapter, later on in this chapter, when he starts talking about the potter and the vessel, one vessel for honor and one vessel for not. Um, that's God's choice. It really is. The point being, He is sovereign and He is just. And we don't deserve any of it. We don't deserve any of it. And if He shows mercy on someone that we don't think deserves mercy. That's God's sovereign choice to do so. It's none of my business. It really isn't. Because He has shown mercy to me and I certainly don't deserve it. He has shown compassion to me and I certainly don't deserve it. He shows mercy on who He has mercy on, compassion on, He has compassion on. And He is sovereign. But He's also loving, forgiving, and just and merciful. Let's pray on that one. Father God, thank you. Father, I pray that you will forgive us when we start to think that we know more than you do. Father, the very fact that you, the very fact that I can sit here and call you Father, it's just so amazing to me. Because I don't deserve that right. Not at all. It is only because of your great love and mercy that I can even claim to know you as Father. And I thank you. I thank you for that. Father, I just pray that in your sovereignty and in your mercy that your will will be done in my life. May you indeed have top priority in all things. Make the choices that you desire, Father, for me. For I know that whatever those choices are, they will be what is best and what is right for me. And I trust you to do that. Thank you, Father, for a love that even desires to know me, a love that forgives me, a love that wants the best for me. For this is my prayer in and through the name of Jesus Christ, your Son, 
my Savior and my Lord and my very bestest friend. Amen and amen. I want to thank you for joining us tonight. And let me encourage you, if you have any comments, questions, or suggestions, please send me an email. My address is davidlkeel at gmail.com. I hope you can be with us next week as we continue on in our study of the ninth chapter of Romans. Until then, it is my prayer that as we go through sometimes the difficult situations in life, may we always remember that God's sovereign will ultimately will always be for our good. Until then, may God bless you.